It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Drops the throw, steps up, floats a bomb up the right seam, looking for Anderson. He's got it. They're not going to catch him. He's going to go the distance. Touchdown. Sam Darnold dials it up to Robbie Anderson. 92 yards. Bell into the middle of that line, and it's a touchdown. Big return for Crowder, 85 yards. Pass thrown, there was contact with the quarterback, and it's incomplete. They got pressure on Prescott. It was Adams who came blitzing in. He'll hit immediately when he got the handoff. You know that's <laughs> the Q-inator. Oh my gosh. Listen, thank you. From the TOJ Digital Studios, this is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter, at PlayLikeAJet1. And we're going to do things a little bit differently this week because it is Christmas week, so things are shifted around a little, kind of like we did with Thanksgiving. So this is Midweek with Manish, Manish Mehta of the New York Daily News. Manish, an interesting victory for the New York Jets over the Pittsburgh Steelers, and by interesting, I mean ugly. Yeah, look, I didn't think that uh, we should expect any fireworks from that game in terms of offensive explosion, just because Pittsburgh and the Jets' defense is pretty stingy. So I anticipated that it would be uh, you know, a close game, a one-possession game. I don't think the offense played particularly well after that impressive first drive. But I do think that uh, Greg Williams' defense did a, a pretty solid job outside of uh, – a brain cramp toward the end of the first half. Uh, I know they weren't going up against Ben Roethlisberger. You know, going up against Devlin Hodges and Mason Rudolph, you know, isn't uh, overly daunting on paper. But uh, I thought the Jet defense did, you know, a solid job. Uh, did what they needed to do. Uh, we already know that the Steelers were shorthanded at quarterback, and then they had lost James Conner, their Pro Bowl running back, in the first half. And then in the second half, they lost their Pro Bowl center, Marquise Pouncey. But uh, you know, as anyone who has heard this podcast for the past three months uh, knows, uh, you know, injuries happen. I believe that uh, that's not an excuse, uh, even in game. Uh, certainly didn't help out the Steelers' cause. But uh, you know, I was very impressed by the way the Jet defense played, specifically Marcus May. Probably, if not his best game, one of his you know top two or three games as a pro, uh, maybe his best play as a pro, breaking up that uh, pass in the end zone in the final minute. Uh, on an incredibly athletic, savvy play. Uh, very impressed by the defense. The offense, again, they did enough to win, uh, but after that first drive, it was tough sledding. Since you brought up Marcus May, I was actually going to say the Jets don't win this game without Marcus May, or Jamal Adams for that matter. So it's weird because a lot of people will say that safety is a low-impact position, and a lot of times it is, but not in this game because without those two big plays by Marcus May, the interception in the end zone, and the pass breakup at the end of the game, the Steelers very well may have won that game. So I think that this may have been the most important game of Marcus May's career in terms of establishing his skills as a center fielder. Jamal Adams comes back from injury and plays lights out again. That combination, when healthy, Manish, is one of the best safety combinations in the league. Yeah, it's kind of what uh, the, the old Jets, Jets brass, envisioned when they they drafted him back-to-back uh, a few years ago. It's just uh, unfortunate for May that uh, you know he hasn't been able to, to live up to kind of what everybody anticipated due to health reasons. And, you know, that had been the knock on him coming out of Florida and, uh, you know, he's been nicked up here and there, but, uh, when he is healthy, really, really a solid player. Uh, I thought that, uh, that, uh, Jamal Adams said it best really after the game, he, you know, believe it or not, I think that Marcus May is an underrated player. Uh, now he has to be on the field, but when he is healthy, he is, you know, he's a quality player. He's a quality piece. And you know, as you said, these guys don't play quote unquote high impact positions, but we already know, what Jamal Adams can do on the field uh, and having him back and having the energy and the juice that he brought to this game after missing a couple games with that ankle injury. You know, he wasn't sacking the quarterback per se, but a couple tackles for loss, quarterback hit. Uh, I think he had uh, tied tied for the most combined tackles. You know, he was his presence was felt in that game, as you would expect. And and then if you when you add on the type of game that Marcus May had, you just kind of, as a Jet fan, wonder, you know, what could it be like if both these guys are healthy moving forward consistently? And it's hard to predict. Uh, you would hope that Marcus May could stay healthy. Both of these guys, 
actually are up for new contracts after this season. Uh, you know, I would anticipate uh, that Jamal Adams would make a, a you know a full court press toward getting a new deal. We'll see about uh, Marcus May. It probably makes most sense unless they're going to get some kind of team friendly deal to hold off on him. But uh, when those guys are right, uh, you you see what they can do. And you know, I can't, I just can't say enough about the play he made uh, in the waning moments on the pass breakup. Uh, you know, it was a nice play on the interception earlier, without a doubt. You know, keeping his feet in in the corner of the end zone. Terrific play, took points off the board, of course, for Pittsburgh. But uh, you know, watching that that pass breakup from a, uh, you know a few different angles, uh, just tremendous athleticism, awareness, field awareness, and uh, you know, if not for that, <laughs> the Jets lose a, a heartbreaker. And uh, you know, uh, just thoroughly impressed by that play. Jamal Adams thought it was the best play he has seen May make in his career. Uh, you know, off the top of my head, it'd be hard to argue with him. Do we know anything about what happened with Bless Austin because he got benched after the touchdown? It seems crazy that a guy who had been playing very well up to that point would get benched just for that one play. Was there something more there? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and that's really under the purview of uh, Greg Williams. You know, that, that's not an Adam Gase call, and, you know, and, and Gase was asked about that uh, on Monday. And he, you know, he made it clear that look, he's not going to micromanage Greg Williams. He brought in Greg Williams for specific reasons, uh, and that was to take care of the defense. And look, there are pros and cons to that approach. You you don't want to be hovering over your defensive coordinator. At the same time, you know, I think you got to be more engaged than than Gase has been, and you know, we can discuss that a little bit later in the podcast. But uh, you know, I would say that you know, Greg Williams, uh, Denard Wilson, those guys know the corners better than anybody else on the coaching staff. And if they feel that uh, one mistake uh, is, is egregious enough to, to sit on the bench, then, you know, they're going to do it. I don't necessarily agree with it, but uh, you know, that, was a, that was a rough one to swallow. You know, when, you, when the Steelers have no timeouts left at, you know, toward the end of the first half and, and then Austin gives up a touchdown in the end zone, that's, that's one thing you cannot do. <laughs> and it was, it was kind of surreal to watch it. Uh, in, in that type of scenario, you kind of feel like, uh, Mason Rudolph's going to, you know, have a, a quick throw to the sideline, get closer for a field goal. You don't actually think that uh, a defender or a defensive back specifically is going to, you know, give up a touchdown. So uh, and clearly that was something that ticked off the, the defensive coaches, and they felt that it was warranted to sit down the rookie. Uh, I don't know if I would have taken that approach, but uh, it's hard, to, again, to argue with a lot of what Greg Williams has done this year because the defense has been uh, – Really good, given you know some of these injuries, and uh, you know, sometimes you don't you don't you don't even realize that they have injuries on defense uh, if you don't follow the team very closely, because you never hear Greg Williams actually talk about the injuries, which is how a coach, frankly, should comport himself, you know, as opposed to the head coach who repeatedly brings up injuries uh, without provocation. So, uh, yeah, look, that's a Greg Williams call. I don't necessarily agree with it. However, uh, if you look at uh, the reasons why the Jets won this game, I think Greg Williams uh, has got to be near the top of the list as to you know why they came away with their sixth win of the season. i got to ask you about Greg Williams because one thing that I've been very curious about, there's a lot of people that have talked about what the locker room thinks of Adam Gase. There have been reports of players in the locker room who really don't like Gase and don't respect him. That's something that's been talked about a lot. One thing that has not been talked about much at all is how the players feel about Greg Williams. What's your sense about that? Well, it depends on what part of the team you're talking about. Because, <laughs> look, the reality is, and this probably shouldn't surprise Jet fans, but the reality is that the defensive players view Greg Williams as their leader, as their coach, you know, as their you know, de facto head coach, however you want to describe it. Uh, there is a... a uh, a detachment uh, between the defensive side of the ball and Adam Gase. And I think that's because Adam Gase wants it that way. He doesn't want to, you know, be involved on the defensive side because he feels that the reason he was hired was to bring out the best in the young quarterback and to improve the offense significantly. And taking away time from that uh, to be involved in the defense when you have an experienced defensive coordinator isn't particularly uh, a valuable use of Adam Gase's time, in his opinion. Now, I, I completely disagree with it because, on the flip side, you know, I've seen through the years uh, Rex Ryan be uh, not involved in the offense and be too detached from the offense. Todd Bowles, in the beginning of his tenure, be too detached from the offense, and now you're seeing it, uh, you know, in reverse, where you have an offensive-minded coach really being hands off. So, 
you know, if you talk to players on the defensive side of the ball, uh, they respect Greg Williams. They view him as their leader. Uh, and I know that, Scott, you and I have talked about the 85 Bears with Buddy Ryan and Mike Ditka. It's very similar, uh, you know, without the, the infighting between the two guys up top. But in terms of how the players view each guy, I think there's a, there's a detachment there that's really undeniable. And, you know, I, I've outlined this uh, privately and uh, in a story that's coming out uh, that came out this week. Uh, there's a couple examples. Uh, that were so glaring to me that really uh, illustrate uh, the divide between the defense and Adam Gase. Uh, there was a t- there were two times, at least two times in practice, where the in the spring where the offense was done, whatever drills and work they were doing, so they were done for the day. Adam Gase had his back to the defense while the defense was still practicing. He had his back to the defense for about a half hour, talking to people on the sideline, and then when he was done talking to the people on the sideline. He turned around and he jogged off the field while practice was still going on. The defensive players and Greg Williams and his staff were still on the field working, and Gase just left without ever watching the defense practice. And I believe this was during uh, – it was, it was in the spring, so I, I would imagine it was OTAs. Uh, that, to me, is very glaring. And that tells you, hey, look, this guy's not invested on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, you know, He trusts Greg Williams, and you know, that's, a, that's one way to look at it. He, he trusts the guy that – that he has in charge on that side of the ball. The other way to look at it is if you actually are the head coach and the CEO of the team, you should invest your time uh, on the other side of the ball. You, you probably can't invest equal amounts of time because there's just not enough uh, hours in the day. But uh, you know that example from the spring to me has always stuck with me. Uh, he had had his back to the practice field, did not once turn around to observe what the defense was doing for about a half hour and then he jogged off and called it, you know, called it a practice when the practice was still actually going on with his defense on the field. So I had not seen that before. Uh, I'm not saying that it, it hasn't happened in, you know, in NFL history. I can't speak to that. But in my, you know, 15 years of covering the NFL, I've I've never seen that. I've never seen a coach not pay attention to one side of the ball in practice and then actually leave the field while uh, half his team was still on it. It's funny you mentioned that because when it happened. I was told about that by somebody, but also told I couldn't discuss it publicly. So I'm glad that you just did because now it's out there because I've been holding on to that ever since it actually happened. And it struck me as being odd. I asked around to some people and they said they'd never seen that before either. Even if you would have said that at the time, though, a lot of people would have said, ah, it's training camp, what's the big deal? But I guess if you look back at it now, knowing what we know, it does kind of serve as a bit of a warning sign, no? Yeah, if things don't change, absolutely, it serves as a, as a warning sign. Uh, he hasn't been involved in the defense. He, he's he's divorced himself from the defense. Uh, so that's why in games, uh, you know, I don't credit Adam Gase or I don't blame Adam Gase uh, if the defense doesn't do well. Uh, if the defense has a great game like they did uh, against Pittsburgh, I, I don't give Adam Gase any credit for that. And if the defense gives up, uh, what, 41 points? to Lamar Jackson and company a week and a half ago. I don't blame Adam Gates for that either. He's, he's not involved in the defense. He is, in effect, the offensive head coach. Uh, I know that there are people in that uh, building that view him as a glorified offensive coordinator, and he's got the head coach title, but he is not engaged on the defensive side. He never has been since he's gotten here. And I know a lot of people say that that's fairly common because you'll hear stories like that about somebody like Rex Ryan. But ultimately, the head coach has to take accountability for everything. Even if he trusts Greg Williams to the nth degree, he's still got to realize that it's his job ultimately to oversee everything. And as you said, Manish, a big part of being the head coach is managing your coaching staff, managing your players, managing the employees, managing everything. It goes so far beyond just calling plays. And that's why whenever people talk about Gase's offense, I think sometimes they're missing the bigger picture. I completely agree with you, and that's why, you know, looking back at this most recent game and what we had just talked about with Bless Austin getting benched, uh, I, I don't, I'm not convinced that Adam Gates even knew that Bless Austin was benched until uh, maybe uh, after the fact. Uh, he is so engaged in the offense and so concerned about the offense that I don't think he really knew, and if he did know, uh, there was no chance that he was going to say, well, this kid's been playing well this year. Uh, keep him in the game, Greg. That's never going to happen. 
that I, I know the dynamic to, between those two guys. Uh, Adam Gase can talk about it uh, in a number of different ways, saying that he trusts Greg Williams, and uh, he, he has said that, look, if there was a situation where he felt like he needed to step in, he would, but I can guarantee you that when there's personnel decisions, guys getting benched in-game, uh, Adam Gates does not have a say in that. He would never override Greg Williams' decision to uh, shuffle players in and out in-game. That, that's, that hasn't happened to this point. That will never happen. Uh, believe me on that. It makes sense because if you go back and look at what happened last year when Rashad Jones pulled himself out of a game and Adam Gase had to be told about it by the press afterwards, it kind of harkens back to what we were just saying with Rex Ryan because if you remember, Manish, you were covering the team at the time when the same thing happened with Santonio Holmes where he was kicked out of the huddle by his teammates and Rex Ryan had to be told about it in the press conference afterwards. So we know what Rex Ryan's downfall was in terms of not being able to take control of the entire team. And while they're very different personalities, Rex obviously much more gregarious and he was a defensive guru as opposed to Gase who is an offensive guru or at least that's what he's billed as. Still you can see where there are similarities between the two including the fact that Rex Ryan jumped right into another job within the division and failed the second time. By the way worth noting that in his two seasons with Buffalo Rex Ryan was 8-8 eight eight in his first season including two wins at the end of the season that gave Buffalo fans a sense of hope going into the next year. They were on a little bit of a roll, might sound familiar to you. And then in his second year, he was 7-8 and eight before being dismissed with one game left in the season. So there are definite parallels there between Rex Ryan and Adam Gase. Now, the book isn't completely written on Adam Gase, but he's not off to a great start. No, he's, uh, he's not off to a great start. He's probably off to a great start in his own mind, but uh, the reality is, uh, look, they're a six and nine team. Uh, their season is six and nine because let's be honest. Next week, the Buffalo Bills will be treating that game like a preseason game. They are locked in as the number five seed in the playoffs. They have absolutely nothing to play for. Can't move up. Can't move down. All they can do is get injured. And they've got a quarterback who loves to run the ball, uh, use his feet. Uh, I can't imagine Sean McDermott exposing Josh Allen to unnecessary hits in a game that means absolutely nothing. Is it a division game? Absolutely. Uh, is it a rivalry game? I, I guess you could say that. But you've got to keep the big picture in mind if you're the Buffalo Bills, and the big picture does not include beating the Jets in Week 17. The big picture uh, includes trying to get as far as you can to get to the Super Bowl. And that's why I would be stunned, frankly, if any key players who are nursing injuries or bumps and bruises play any extended amount of time. I frankly think they're going to treat this like a first preseason game. So that means some starters won't play. Maybe some starters will play a series or two, uh, you know, depending on what kind of depth they have. But I can't imagine anyone who's nicked up in any form or fashion, uh, any player of relevance, is going to play in this game. So that, in effect, gives the Jets a great opportunity to get a free win. You know, I know it's not free technically, but it's, you know, it's, a, it's a Jet team and a, and a Jet head coach who wants to desperately get another win uh, on his resume against Buffalo's JV team. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And people will say, look, Matt Barkley dropped 40-plus points on the Jets last year, which is true. Uh, I think that was an aberration. I think most Jet football fans will tell you that's an anomaly more than uh, uh, any kind of uh, indicator or predictor of what would happen in Week 17 if Barkley plays. So... Uh, I think this is a great opportunity for the Jets to get a win. It's window dressing. I mean, let's be honest. It, it, it's completely uh, unimportant uh, in the here and now. It does actually hurt the Jets in draft positioning because right now they're in the number 10 spot. Uh, if they pick up a seventh win, they could slide a few more spots, and that ultimately could hurt the you know, the Jets' building process. Uh, it certainly can't help them. But, uh, I, you know, I look at this second half of the season. Uh, let's say, for argument's sake, they do beat the, the Bills' JV team. I mean, that means they would finish 6-2 and two in, the, uh, in, the, in the second half of the season after starting, what, 1-7. and seven. And on paper, you know, if you're Adam Gase, you're trying to sell, hey, look, I've turned things around. You want to sell it to your bosses. You want to try to sell it to your fans. I think fans uh, who follow the Jets are much smarter than that, and they kind of understand you know, what has happened here. But let's look, at, as of right now, they're 5-2. and two in the second half of the season. Uh, and his apologists, you know, people that want to get out the propaganda, uh, will, will hammer that home uh, over the next several days, I would imagine. Uh, what they won't tell you is that those five wins have come against teams who are combined 33 and 57. 
that's a 347 winning percentage. And if the Steelers don't get a, you know, a lot of help, uh, those five wins will all be against teams that did not make the playoffs. And I think if you look at this season as a whole, discounting Week 17, you know, win or losses, take it out of the equation. The Jets uh, are 0-4 against teams who have already clinched the playoffs. They will be 0-5 against playoff teams if the Eagles beat the Giants next week and win the NFC East. If that happens, that means that the Jets will have lost all five games against teams that will be in this year's playoffs. And if you want to take it down a notch, the Jets are 1-6 against teams that have a winning record right now. That's not something to brag about. Uh, I don't think that's particularly impressive. And, you know, I know earlier in the year, Scott, we've talked about who Adam Gase has been now for for four years as a head coach. It's either he squeaks out a win or he gets blown out. And, you know, the updated numbers are really fascinating. Uh, Not much different uh, than what we talked about earlier in the season. But on average, in the four seasons that Adam Gase has been a head coach, he loses one out of every four games by at least 18 points, which is unbelievable. I mean, just reading that and seeing that is eye-opening. One out of every four games, once a month, he'll lose a game by at least 18 points. And one out of every two and a half games, he'll lose by double digits. So it, there's, a, there's a pattern here that the teams that he coaches routinely get blown out. And when they win, they barely win. So what does that say about the about the head coach? He's 29 and 35 in four seasons as a head coach. So 29 total wins. He has 26 losses by double digits. He's got 22 losses by at least two touchdowns. He's got 12 losses by at least 12, 20 points. I mean, that is not an, an impressive resume, and that covers two different teams. So you, know, you can draw your own conclusions about what kind of season the Jets have had and what kind of coach Adam Gase is. But these raw numbers uh, are not impressive in the least bit. And, and I know, Scott, we can talk about offense because he's brought in to be an offensive guru. Uh, we can talk about, and I'd like to talk about, the difference between the 2018 Jets offense and the 2019 Jets offense because the reality is that the Jets are worse with Adam Gase this year than they were with Jeremy Bates a year ago. Manish, I want to get back to that in a second because there are interesting numbers there in terms of a comparison with Miami as well, but I wanted to throw this out there at you. reminds me a lot of the 2013 Jets because if you remember, the 2013 Jets were another team that ended up going right around where the Jets are going to go. If the Jets win this game, which we expect, they'll go 7-9 and nine after starting out so poorly. The Jets in 2013 were 5-8, and eight, finished 8-8. Eight and eight. They won three of their last four. And so a lot of people overlooked a lot of the deficiencies on the team and expected something more the following season. They ended up going 4-12 and 12 because there were a lot of warning signs in that 8-8 eight eight season that a lot of people didn't look at. And like you said, mostly what it boiled down to is they were winning really close games against bad teams and getting blown out by good teams. And the point differential was atrocious. Same thing that's going on this year, by the way. Minus 90 is the point differential for the Jets this season. Yeah, they don't make adjustments come out of halftime, and that, that's that been a recurring theme. Uh, they scored their fewest amount of points in the third quarter. Uh, they, I think it's like three and a half points on average per game in the third quarter. Uh, and we just saw that a couple days ago against the Steelers. They, they come out on fire again. They've got the scripted plays. The first drive you know, is impressive. They score a touchdown, and then the offense for the rest of the half – minus the 54-yard field goal, a bunch of three-and-outs and a turnover. Uh, and then you come out of the second half, and they at least scored a field goal in, in that first drive of the second half, but then it was a dud after that. So uh, I think that's a lack of preparation. I don't know if that's a – the the ability not to adjust falls on the coaching staff. I think that is the area. There's a, you know, there's a, a few other areas, but when you want to pinpoint uh, who are the good coaches in the league, who are the good staffs in the league, just look at the adjustments made coming out of halftime, whether you're winning or you're losing. Uh, you can make changes on the fly. You have an ability and a capacity to absorb information in real time and, uh, and then make the proper changes you know, for your team's benefit. And we just haven't seen that. The 15 games, for, by and large, that hasn't happened with Adam Gase. And that's a reflection of poor coaching. I mean, there's really no other way to say it. It's, you know, reduced to simplest terms, it's, that is on Adam Gase. Uh, it's not on anybody else. I know that execution is a, is a big part of, this, of the whole thing, but 
uh, you know, 15 games worth, uh, it's not always execution. I think, by and large, it's it's poor adjustments by this head coach. Uh, just another reason why I don't think he's a particularly good head coach. If he were a good head coach, I would praise him. I just haven't seen it. Uh, and just to, you know, to get back to the difference between this year and last year, this man was hired to improve the offense. He was hired to take Sam Darnold to the next level. I think you know Sam Darnold has made some improvements. I think that's uh, I think that's fair to say. Uh, however, I I also think that it's fair to wonder what he would have been with Jeremy Bates. And look, Jeremy Bates was never going to come back. He had his own flaws. I totally understand that. But everybody was raving about Sam Darnold at the end of 2018 because of the December that he had. You know, outside of the season finale in Foxborough. You know, he, I thought he played exceptional football. And it was almost like he started from square one again with Adam Gase. It's, it wasn't as if he picked up where he left off at the end of last season. It was almost like a reset button, uh, a reset button that Adam Gase forced upon Sam Darnold. Uh, Sam Darnold was doing a lot of things. Jeremy Bates realized what Sam Darnold was good at, the rollouts, the design rollouts, get him, get him on the move, you know, things of that nature. We all saw that as reporters, as fans. And that's why it was particularly maddening in the first month or so that Sam Darnold actually played, you know, minus the time that he was out. But that first, you know, four or five games with Adam Gase, Adam Gase, it was almost as if Adam Gase had not watched the tape from last year. It was almost as if he did not know that Sam Darnold was good on the move and was good rolling out. And that, I know, was uh, annoying to people in the building. Clearly it was annoying to fans because you can hear that every day. But it was annoying to people in the building because people in the building – are saying, hey, we know what this guy's good at. Why isn't he being put in a position to thrive uh, based off of what we saw at the end of last year? So that's why I thought he got off to you know a, a slower start than he needed to get off to because I think he should be much farther along right now with one game left in his second season than he actually is. Now, I think he's made strides, and you've seen flashes of really good play. Uh, you've seen a lot of uneven spots uh, really over the past three or four weeks. You've seen that. So you haven't seen that massive jump that you saw from a Carson Wentz from year one to two. I, I, was, I was hopeful that I would see that. Uh, maybe we'll see that at the start of year three. But uh, I think he's headed in the right direction. I just don't believe at all that Adam Gase has taken uh, that massive jump that people thought, uh, or that I should say Sam Darnold has taken that massive jump with Adam Gase that people in the building thought. So it's, you know, it's hard to, you know, kind of figure out the, what that means in 2020. But does that mean that Sam Darnold's only going to take these incremental steps with Gase and that he can't, you know, take that giant leap with this guy or or what? I don't know, but I thought I was going to see that, that big jump uh, because of Gase's quote-unquote acumen, and I haven't seen that. And just as a whole, what's glaring to me, Scott, is that the Jets are worse this year than they were last year in these offensive categories. Now, keep up with me here. They have fewer points per game, from 20.8 to 17.5. I won't bore you with the numbers beyond that, but they have fewer points per game this year than last year. They have fewer total yards per game. They have, few, they have a, a worse yards per play average. They have fewer first downs per game. They have fewer passing yards per game. They have fewer rushing yards per game. They have fewer rushing yards per attempt. They have a worse third down efficiency. And they have run fewer plays per game than they did last year. So I don't know, what is that, 10 different categories? Virtually every meaningful statistical offensive category they have regressed in uh, with Adam Gase than they did a year ago. That, to me, is unbelievable. It's not even a mixed bag where you can say, hey, you know, they're better in this area and not as good in this other area. Every area is worse than a year ago, every single one of them. And I don't know how Adam Gates reconciles that. I mean, they're in the bottom three in the, in the NFL in total yards, in rushing yards, in passing yards, in yards per play, in third down efficiency, and in first downs. That's horrible. Even the, the, the biggest Adam Gates apologist cannot wiggle out of that truth. What I just said to you, those numbers are undeniable. They're irrefutable. So all the, the BS that you hear from Adam Gase, all the BS that you see uh, defending him, 
it, it's not substantiated because the reality is what I just told you. They're worse in every offensive category this year than they were a year ago, and they're among the bottom three in probably the five or six most important offensive categories. So how has Adam Gates helped this offense? I don't see it. And if this doesn't have anything to do with how he comports himself as a leader. It doesn't have anything to do with his personality or how he carries himself. This is Adam Gates as a football coach. Adam Gates as a football coach has been worse than Jeremy Bates was as a football coach last year. That is fact. That is reality. Well, I hate to pour a little gasoline on that fire, Manish, but let's consider a couple of other things. The Dolphins have the 15th most passing yards in the NFL. This is per my buddy Travis Wingfield over at Locked On Dolphins. The highest they ever finished under Adam Gase, including seasons when Tannehill was healthy, 18th. Not only that, but under first-year coordinator Chad O'Shea this year, the Dolphins are 27th in passing offense, several spots ahead of the New York Jets. Now, people are going to say, well, the Jets' offensive line is terrible and they've had injuries. Sure, but Jamison Crowder and Robbie Anderson, their top two receivers, have been healthy the entire season. People will also say, but the Jets had Luke Falk playing two and a half games and a half of Trevor Simeon. That's true, but the Dolphins also had Josh Rosen play three games, and he was historically terrible. And the Dolphins have one of the worst offensive lines in the league as well. In fact, if you recall, Manish, they traded away their best offensive lineman in the offseason, Laramie Tunsil. And a lot of people were calling them a historically bad offensive line. So Chad O'Shea, who's never been an offensive coordinator before, has this team that was in tank mode, by all accounts, at 27th. With Ryan Fitzpatrick, who we know very well as the quarterback, they're 27th. Sam Darnold, who has been healthy for most of the season. I know he had mono for a couple of games, but still, he's made the vast majority of the starts. He's had Crowder. He's had Robbie Anderson. Le'Veon Bell has been there. You can't possibly say that the Dolphins have better players on offense than the Jets do. The offensive line is just as bad, if not worse, than the Jets. And yet, the Dolphins are several spots ahead. It's really crazy. And we've talked about this before, Manish, too. There's a first-year offensive coordinator in Tennessee with Ryan Tannehill getting the best football of Ryan Tannehill's career out of him, much better than anything Tannehill ever did with Miami and Adam Gase. So Adam Gase has been one-upped by two separate first-year offensive coordinators. Not a good sign. And I know that it sounds weird that we're saying all of this stuff when the Jets are coming off of a win. But you have to keep in mind that you need to look deeper than just the surface area understanding of the wins and the losses. Yes, you want to make sure that they get as many wins in a vacuum. But going forward, you have to learn from the wins and the losses. What do they tell you? And as I said, all the warning signs were there in 2013 and the regression came. That regression is going to come for the Jets next year unless Joe Douglas does a really nice job of remaking this roster and Adam Gase changes the way he does things. I think a lot of fans have faith in Joe Douglas. They may not have as much faith in Adam Gase changing the way he does things. I think you hit the nail on the head, which is it's easy to look at the record right now and say that you know they've won five of the last seven. What's wrong? Why would you complain about going five and two? That doesn't make any sense. But if you do look deeper, if you understand who they've beaten, how they've won, what is sustainable, what's a mirage, uh, you'll know that there's a lot of work to be done because the product is not good enough, not nearly good enough, it's not sustainable. I'm fairly certain that Joe Douglas understands this. I don't think he's being fooled by... Uh, the 6-9 and nine record, uh, and as I said earlier, it matters to Adam Gase. It'll be window dressing if they win their seventh game and they finish 7-9. and nine. But anybody who looks at this season and says it's trending in the right direction because they won seven games as opposed to four last year is A, uh, not looking close enough, or B, uh, an Adam Gase apologist and pointing to uh, what's right in front of you on the surface. But if you look beyond the surface, as you mentioned, Scott, you'll see – that there are issues here. Uh, there's, there's also a tangential issue that I see that bothersome to me, and I heard this after the game the other day. Uh, I, I hear too many players now uh, bringing up injuries uh, without provocation. Sometimes it's in response to an injury-related question, but there's too many guys who are using injuries as an excuse or, or as a mechanism to explain some of their struggles. You don't hear that from Tom Brady. You don't hear that from the Patriots players, even though they've suffered injuries. Uh, 
uh, you don't hear it uh, often from uh, at all, at least off, uh, that I know of, from Steelers players, even though they've suffered injuries. Uh, you, you know, to hear some people tell it, uh, you would think that the you know, the Jets uh, suffered injuries to every important player. Uh, it, yet they're dismissing the fact that they've had Le'Veon Bell healthy for all but one game. They're dismissing the fact that uh, Jameson Crowder has been absolutely terrific this year. He's been healthy all year. Robbie Anderson has been terrific over the last month and a half. Uh, there's this narrative, I hate using the word narrative, but there's this storyline that has gotten pushed, you know, and I, I know how, but it's, it still doesn't make it any less annoying. There's a storyline that had gotten pushed all season that the greatest of the great head coaches would never have won with this roster. You know, Belichick, Lombardi, Walsh, whoever. You know, you pick, pick your Bear Bryant. I mean, go, go to college. You know, pick whoever you want. None of these great coaches could win with the slop that the Jets had on their roster. And yeah, there are holes on this roster that need to be addressed. Everybody knows that. Everybody who follows this team understands that. But it's obvious to me that the excuse making that is generated from this head coach is permeating, and that's dangerous. You don't. It's one thing, you know, to wind in through back channels to have, you know, a buddy or two, you know, push out your agenda to the masses. Okay, that's one thing. It's a very different thing uh, if you start pushing that that narrative to your players, and then your players start believing it, and your players start thinking it's okay to discuss it, uh, to explain the struggles. That, to me, is counterproductive. That's not what winning organizations do. Winning organizations do not do that. And the reason they do, don't do that is because their head coach, their leader, doesn't do that. Bill Belichick does not make excuses for injuries. Uh, if you ask the Jet fan the, how many injuries the, the Patriots would have, they would say, well, they haven't had any injuries. Well, why do they say that? They say that because they don't hear about it. Why don't they hear about it? Because the coach and the players don't talk about it. And that's the way that you should handle yourself uh, as an organization from the top down. You should not talk about the injuries as an excuse. And too many people in the building are starting to do that. Uh, players I respect, have a great deal of respect for, accomplished players. Uh, I just think that is the problem when you have a guy like Adam Gase. He, he starts talking about it publicly. He starts, you know, mentioning that to players, and you just can't have that seep into your consciousness. You can't have that be a part of your culture. And it was just something that jumped out at me after the Steelers game. Just people in that locker room talking about injuries, uh, it's just not what winners do. Winners don't behave like that. They don't act like that. I've been covering the NFL a lot longer than any of those players have been NFL players, and I know that that is a losing mentality. That's a loser's mentality. Uh, that's, that's what excuse makers are. They're losers. And I would hope that that doesn't continue, but it's something that was troubling to me, at least after this game uh, over the weekend. While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Hey guys, Greg Peterson here with the Baseball Betting Podcast. As we know, the MLB season is back in our lives. It's going to be a 60-game sprint 
unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And I'm going to be giving you picks every single day, seven days a week with Major League Baseball. We're also going to be keeping up with the KBO as well. If you like baseball and you like being able to make some money, subscribe to the Baseball Betting Podcast with Greg Peterson on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson, host of the podcast Hooping with Hoops. Despite the fact that college basketball is in the offseason, it's never too early to get a jump start on taking a look at these teams because there is now 357 of them for the upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. I'm going to give you guys a deep dive on every last one of them, keep up with all the transfers in college basketball, and so much more. You are able to subscribe to Hooping with Hoops on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. I think the biggest thing that people are worrying about now is whether or not Sam Darnold can hit his ceiling with Adam Gase because that was one thing that a lot of people talked about when Gase was hired was, well, he had his shortcomings, but he should be good working with Sam Darnold. But if you look at what we were just talking about, how there are more efficient passing offenses in Miami and in Tennessee where Ryan Tannehill is doing the best that he's ever done after several years with Adam Gase where he didn't hit his ceiling, it's a legitimate question because we've seen some really nice things from Sam Darnold, but we've also seen some things that were head-scratching in terms of strategy. And then, of course, there's that famous meeting between Darnold and Gase after that Jacksonville game where Darnold had to essentially, it seems like, pull Gase aside and say, this is what I want to do, this is what I don't want to do, this is what I'm comfortable with, this is what I'm not comfortable with. The fact that that had to happen at any point and that Gase didn't recognize it himself is a warning sign. But I think that it's a legitimate concern for Jets fans right now because Sam Darnold is 22 years old. He's got three years left on his rookie deal. These are critical years not only from a team-building perspective with the salary cap, but also from a development perspective. And they can't afford to not have somebody in here that is going to get the absolute most out of Sam Darnold. So there are a lot of questions here with Adam Gase in terms of the development of Darnold. Arnold, which is, I would imagine, if you poll Jets fans, the most important thing to them at this point. Absolutely. Uh, that's why he was hired, right? To bring the best out of Darnold. Uh, can I say for sure, can anyone say for sure that that's going to happen uh, with Adam Gase? No, you, you can't. Uh, again, I think there's a natural evolution and development that was going to occur with Sam Darnold this year, no matter who the head coach, whether it was uh, Adam Gase, Matt Rule, Todd Monken, uh whoever. Uh I think that just the experience alone from a year ago was going to make him a better player. The question is how much better and how quickly can he get to that next stratosphere? Adam Gates was supposed to fast track that because of his acumen. Uh, that hasn't happened. Now, now Sam has improved without a doubt. And I see some plays. I saw some plays in the Buffalo game that I absolutely loved. Uh, he's got something. It's obvious that he's got something. You need the right person to get that per- get that something out of him. Uh, you haven't seen that consistently uh, this year. Uh, you know, Sam Darnold will admit that that it hasn't been consistent. So the question becomes why? Why hasn't it been consistent? How much is, of it is on the player? How much of it is on the coaching, uh, the play caller not putting him in the proper positions? Uh, I think it's more that than the player. Uh, just because we saw him trending up in December of last year. And you got this, this this feeling that he was just going to take off. He was going to take off, hit the ground running. Yeah, he was sick. I, I understand that. But it took him a while. And you referenced him talking to uh, talking to uh, Gase afterwards. And that to me is, you know, that was always odd to me. That's a conversation that should have been happening all along. Uh, you don't let you don't let your your young quarterback just kind of flap out there in the wind and, and you know make him come to you. That's silly. That's bad coaching. That's bad leadership. Uh, you know, you, you need to be proactive as the head coach. You know, you need to ask him more questions than not. If that means you're annoying him because you're asking too many questions, then so be it. But you can't leave it up to him to come to you. Now, he's a mature kid, and he came to him at the, at the right time, but it, it, that, that dynamic to me is troubling. That's not what the dynamic should be. Gase should, Gase is, he's, we're very established. He's not involved on the defensive side of the ball. So if his whole job is to make sure that the quarterback is you know, maximizing his ability as quickly as possible, then he should not have uh, allowed that dynamic to take place where the, you know, 
there's not enough communication and the and the quarterback you know has to say hey look can we just have a discussion here i want to give you a, an idea of you know, what i like and what i don't like those types of discussions should have been happening every single day every day even on days off and there are no days off right you want to be a winner you want to be a champion you you want to bring out the best in this young quarterback you need to have that kind of continuous dialogue uh and that didn't happen and that is a part of Adam Gase's flaw as a leader. Uh, I don't know if that'll ever change, but that was a, a clear flaw, and, and that's why it'll be interesting to see what happens in 2020. Uh, you know, things weren't going well for Donald for a while, and uh, without getting into too many details, uh, I, you know, I can fairly say that when things weren't going particularly well for Donald, uh, you know, in that middle portion of the season, uh, I don't necessarily believe that his head coach, uh, you know, had his back. Uh, you know, I'll put it that way, and that to me is troubling. That's always been troubling, you know, since I found out about it. And uh, you know, that type of stuff needs to change. Uh, you need to have this kid's back. You need to be all over him, uh, and just in terms of dialogue, you, you need to talk through things with him. It needs to be daily. It needs to be constant. There needs to be no gray area. And uh, anybody who knows Sam Donald knows that. Look, he he is receptive to coaching. He wants to be great. And he is going to listen to you, you know, whether that's listening to Adam Gase this year, listening to Sam, uh, listening to uh, Jeremy Bates last year. Uh, he wants to be on your side. He wants to be on board with Adam Gase. So you got to give him an opportunity, uh, and you got to be a better teacher. You got to be a better leader. You, you can't, you can't do what you did this year. You know, if you're Adam Gase, you can't handle things next year the way you handle things this year because if you do you're really doing a disservice to the organization you're doing a disservice to this kid you're not going to get the best out of him and that would be probably the biggest shame of it all because he's got so much ability and you talked about the financial aspect of it scott there's a window here where the jets can build around him while they're still paying him on his rookie contract and once that time is gone it's gone forever then you're going to have to pony up uh, you know what the market rate is for for quarterbacks now imagine what it's going to be like in a, in a year or two and then uh, it's going to be that much more difficult for for Joe Douglas, you know, to build around uh, around this player. But you know, this is a uh, who this is a special player in, in my mind. Uh, it's had nothing to do with him being a nice kid. And there's plenty of nice kids that I've covered, nice guys who didn't have this type of ability to be a special player. Um, he's got the ability to be a special player, and it would be a travesty if uh, if the Jets blew it. If the Jets are looking to pay Sam Darnold with a big contract extension, perhaps they could ask Adam Gase for a loan because, as I understand it, Manish, he's got a few dollars in the bank. <laughs> yeah, one of the running storylines, uh, you know, for months now has been, uh, the, you know, the fans' frustration toward Adam Gase, right? And look, it's it's understandable. Uh, he he is who he is, uh, and I think smart fans see through it, and uh, you know. Adam Gase's go-to line uh, privately over the last 11 months has been, uh, quote, I'm uh, rich as F. You know, I, I know it's a family podcast, Scott, so I'm not going to uh, <laughs> drop the four-letter word. But, uh, yeah, he has boasted uh, about his uh, bank account privately uh, anytime someone mentions uh, the criticism. Uh, it's a defense mechanism. Uh, I had somebody in the building tell me he's a, he's a very insecure person. I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, anybody who talks about how much money they make uh, – you know, in the face of criticism, is obviously doing that uh, because you know they're insecure about uh, several things. Uh, you know, whether that's his coaching acumen uh, or or something else. Uh, you know, it's that's not what normal people do. Uh, let's put it that way. I don't think I've ever said, "Hey, you know, I'm rich. I make this my amount of money." But that, yeah, that's been his uh, his go-to line this year. My, that's my understanding. And uh, he let's let's put it this way: uh, he has made it clear privately that the the fact that he got a second head coaching contract. Uh, you know, from the Johnsons this time, but the fact that he got a second head coaching contract has really emboldened him. He is not going to significantly change how he operates. Uh, I know that uh, there were people, uh, myself included, that thought that he would be humbled by his failures in Miami. Uh, regardless of the fact that he got a job right away, I thought that he would learn from his mistakes and and he would change some significant things, some important things about uh, how he runs an organization. That has not happened uh, had somebody in the building tell me specifically that, look, he's going to try to win, and he's going to try to win his way. Uh, I don't know exactly know what his way is because 
what I've seen from him in four seasons has not worked, but uh, the money has emboldened him. You know, getting the contract uh, was extremely important to him. Uh, now he feels like he can do things the way he wants to do things. He's not looking over his shoulder. He's got guaranteed money coming. Uh, that's not to say he's slacking off because that's not any. That's not the indication I've gotten from people in the building. He does put in the time. It's not like he's, you know, hitting the links, and going golfing at five o'clock every day. That's not the case at all. He does does put forth in the put forth the time in, but he remains as stubborn as ever. And I think that contract. In fact, I know that contract because he's he has told people this. That contract is a big reason why he is not going to change. The only adjustment that he has made uh, publicly, at least, has been how he handles press conferences, because, Scott, I know you've followed him enough through the years that he was pretty surly in his press conferences with Miami reporters. Uh, but my understanding is that at least one influential person in the organization came up to him uh, in the wake of their week one loss to the Bills uh, after he was a little bit chippy uh, to reporters uh, the day after. Uh, he was told specifically, hey, look, you got to get your act together. You cannot bristle at these types of questions from people that you may not like because if you do that, all that does is reflect poorly, not only on you, but more importantly, it reflects poorly on the organization. So uh, I was told that he begrudgingly relented. So if you do watch him in press conference settings, it's, you know, he's still a little bit rough around the edges, but it is uh, markedly different than what you saw in Miami, which it seemed like he was ticked off every day and uh, had that, uh, you know, know-it-all type of vibe about him. And he still does have that vibe about him, but at least... Uh, you know, in his words, it's a little bit different uh, than it had been in, in Miami. And that's specifically because he was told, hey, you've you got to change your ways. And so he did. Uh, you know, whether he truly believes it or not, uh, you know, that's up for debate. I don't think he does. But he is comporting himself better in those situations. But that's about it. And in every other way, he's, uh, he's the same guy. As the saying goes, a leopard doesn't change his spots, and it sure seems like Adam Gase is just as stubborn today as he was the day he accepted the Miami Dolphins head coaching job back in 2016. You'd like to think the lack of success would change that going forward, but if history is any indication, then it's probably not likely that that's going to happen. Manish, thanks so much for coming on. As always, really appreciate it. Hope you had a good couple of days off to rest, reset, recharge, and you're ready to go back into battle covering the Jets for the Daily News. What do you got cooking over there? First and foremost, it would be interesting to see where the Jets end up in draft positioning. Uh, and then take a look at guys who have a good chance of returning, uh, guys who have helped out their cause over the final month, and guys who probably will not be returning uh, to the Jets uh, for a number of different reasons. So you got to look forward now uh, beyond this season because, uh, as we said, uh, other than Adam Gase, I don't think there's very many people that actually care about the result on Sunday in Buffalo. Regardless of the lack of stakes, because we know that the Bills have already clinched the five seed and the Jets can't make the playoffs, this is still your final opportunity to see the Jets in the 2019 season, your last chance to see Sam Darnold at quarterback until we get to August. So you may want to make that trip up to Buffalo. You can probably get pretty cheap tickets, especially when you go to our friends over at Vivid Seats. You download the Vivid Seats mobile app, you use the promo code OVERTIME, and you get yourself up to 100 bucks off on your very first purchase. So that could mean a really sweet deal for you if you want to make the trip up to Buffalo this weekend. You can use the promo code for that, or you can use it for something else. Maybe a concert's coming to town that you want to see, wrestling match, a boxing match, basketball game, a hockey game. Whatever it is you want to use that promo code on, you can do it and get yourself up to 100 bucks off on your very first purchase when you use the promo code OVERTIME. Don't forget to follow Manish on Twitter and read him in the Daily News. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and TurnOnTheJets.com.